and welcome to this week's edition of The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge Television, brought to you by our good friends at Ditchwitch. Bass Edge Television is currently on the Wild TV Network in Canada and the World Fishing Network, which you can find on Dish Satellite TV. Hey, and don't forget, we'll be back on Versus starting January of 2009. So a lot of stuff that we're at you right off the top, but we want to make sure you know where to find us. This is Outdoors Dan, and my good friend Aaron Martin, who is the host of Bass Edge, is right alongside What's going on, buddy? It is hot, but uh, the fish are still biting, thankfully. they got to eat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of like me, right? <laughs> yeah, we all have to eat. Yeah. Hey, we got a good podcast. We're going to be listening uh, with Bill McDonald. And, uh, you know, Bill is always a pleasure to listen to because he's got a lot of different techniques. He loves fishing shallow. He does. And, uh, you know, the fun part about this is uh, an area that I'm not real familiar with, but I know you have a lot of familiarity, and that is on the Ohio River. So he's going to be breaking that down for us. Yeah, that's going to be pretty neat. And then we're going to be hearing from the Lusk guy, Bob Lusk, and he's going to be talking about something that I think a lot of people like to... Uh to really focus on, and that's fishing high water, especially with all the floods we had this year. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding there. You ready to get going? I, I am. Let's get to it. Are you sure? I'm positive. Let's do all right, it. All right, folks, here we go. It's all right here for you on the edge. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Brought to you in part by Ditch Witches On. Experience the revolution. Oh, look here. I got one. I got one. Look here. <laughs> I mean, he whacked that football jig. The blades will dictate a lot of times the speed of the retrieve or the depth of that bait. Oh, good fish. Good fish. Did you see him come off that log? Woo, look at that song gun, man. That's awesome. You know, you've got to just stay active. Fishing is not easy. Oh, man, that's a toad. This is unbelievable. All right, folks, Outdoors Dan here along with Aaron Martin. And, you know, Aaron, I tell you what, it's just everything's going 9-0 right now. And the fishing is really, really good. I know it's hot, but, you know, they're a little deeper, but they're biting. Well, I've got some self-serving news, at least, because in the morning, uh, I am going to be leaving for a place that's less hot than what it is now. Humidity's lower, and that is heading north uh, to the woman man boy chain and also lake vermilion in uh, there in minnesota oh you're coming up to my neck of the woods. i'm heading to your neck of the woods yeah. that is correct we're gonna yeah be... you'll love vermilion if you haven't fished that you're gonna well let me see what are you going for walleye no 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 it, it's <laughs> it's not called walleye edge but i although it would not break my heart you know if, if i caught a few while i was up there i can tell you that because i do like to catch walleye but you got a good chance if you're gonna throw any shad wraps or anything like that you might catch one well, i hear you and yeah. uh i i love i love catching uh, subspecies you know when i'm bass fishing that's that's what makes it fun yeah. but uh no we're gonna we're gonna head up there we're, we'll be shooting uh two shows for season three uh one of them is going to be with one of the collegiate bass angler association members um and then the other one is going to be with bass elite angler kurt duff all right you know this time of year i know ahead with having you on the radio program you you hear a lot of the questions we get on the show people are looking for different techniques or different ways to fish and when it's this hot, I know a lot of people want to just wait and take advantage of the cooler temperatures in the evening and fish at night. Boy, and, that's true. And night fishing really is a really neat time to be on the water. It, it is. And, and, you know, the ironic thing is, Dan, um, that is really what helped kickstart me, I guess, into to bass fishing was just the ability uh, to fish at night. I, I, I did a lot of summertime night fishing, not only on ponds and rivers, but also on lakes. And, uh, you know, the thing about it is, 
especially when uh, when you're able to kind of find the fish and know the areas to go to. It can be a little difficult uh, to navigate, but you get used to it. And, and what I would recommend there is obviously on if it's a lake that you're unfamiliar with, maybe pair up with somebody who has some familiarity there. But uh, bottom line is, man, there's nothing better than going out and throwing a big old plastic worm or, you know, big jig in the grass and a uh, big whomping spinnerbait or something like that because it's you, not being able to see your line and seeing your surroundings. It's it's really, really fun. Yeah, buzzbait at night is the best. Boy, that's for sure. Yeah, the only problem I have a little bit from time to time, especially when there's a lot of docks involved, is, you know, those, those cables tend to, to get me because uh, it does make <laughs> you pay, have to pay attention to the feel of your cast, you know. Yeah, a, but boy, I tell you what, when you're retrieving that back and you hear that blah, 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 and all of a sudden, <laughs> I mean, that just gets your heart going, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like somebody threw a Volkswagen in the water, you know. Yeah, no, that's just, that's an awesome feeling, but... You know, night fishing is also a great time just to get out there and relax and unwind because, I mean, everything's settled down. You don't have the traffic on the lake, and it's pretty surreal. So, I mean, it's a wonderful time to go fishing. It, it is, and, you know, um, I, I think especially when you get into and talking about the moon, and I know in our previous podcast uh, we've had some individuals talking about, about night fishing, but Rick Loomis in particular, he brought up the story last year about fishing in the in the shade of the moon, just like using you know the sun as the sun creates shadows, so the moon creates shadows around structure or docks or things like that. So uh, for all those who are interested in night fishing, that'd be a great podcast to go back and listen to. Absolutely. Well, listen, we got a good interview coming up, Bill McDonald, and uh, we're going to talk about fishing shallow. And you know what? You can do that at night too. Absolutely. You ready to get going? Let's do it. All right, folks, we'll be right back here on The Edge after these fine words. Give any type of boat The Edge with MegaWare Keel Guard. It's simple to install, and we can now beach our boat anywhere. If you own a boat, you need one of these. MegaWare Keel Guard protects the keel of your boat from sand abrasion, from underwater obstructions, even concrete boat ramps. Kit started under $140, and best yet, it's guaranteed to keep on protecting for life. Thanks, MegaWare Keel Guard. Thanks, MegaWare Keel Guard. Welcome back to The Edge, brought to you in part by Ditch Witches On, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. All right, welcome back to The Edge, and joining us for this week's Angler Spotlight is Bill McDonald. Bill, thanks so much uh, for being part of The Edge. Hey, Aaron, thanks for having me back on here again. Hey, I'm you really bet. Looking forward to it. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun, and, you know, we get to talk about uh, an area that I am not quite as familiar with, uh, and that is the Ohio River, but it's an area that you certainly are, having uh, three top five finishes and a top ten, you know, getting angler of the year at the federation level, and, of course, uh, numerous finishes there through throughout your BFL and string career as well. But uh, this is a, this is an area that you've spent quite a bit of time on. Yeah, I grew up fishing the river here, and, you know, it's an area that it's probably got a lot of bad press over the years. I think we had one of the smallest weigh-ins, well, probably two of the smallest weigh-ins ever in uh, Bassmasters Classic history, one out of Louisville and then one out of the Pittsburgh area there. But it's a lot better fishery than what those finishes have actually shown, Aaron. Well, and, and you know, I'm sure there's numerous factors that, that go into some of that, but uh, I'm kind of a firm believer that each fishery goes through cycles and goes through phases. But uh, it certainly helps having someone like yourself to be able to, to more or less set the stage and kind of walk us through what we need to know or, or don't need to know uh, concerning the Ohio River. But, you know, could you really, I guess, start there? You, you know, the Ohio is, is such a large um, area to fish. 
maybe set us up for what we could expect. Well, I'm a shallow water fisherman. I call it a knee-deep fisherman most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I've never known you to have more, you know, than 15 or 20 feet on your line at, or on your reel at a time, rather. Ah, uh, the rest of it's all for backing anyway. There you go. But uh, I, I like the I like creeks for the most part. I mean, you can catch them on the river as well as you can in the creeks. But I like the little shallow flat creeks. I just seem like they tend to hold a little bit better quality fish than, than what you do actually out on the river. The uh, fish on the river itself, you know, of course, with their current coming through there, they're pretty simple to pattern, but the size of them don't seem to be what we have in the backs of those creeks. So do you have creeks, you know, from all the way from one end of the river to the other? Is, is it pretty, you know, are, are you targeting the same type of, of structure in that throughout? Yeah, and I fish, you know, far east of Cincinnati, all the way to west of, of Evansville, Indiana, down through there on the river. And then I've been on the Mississippi as well, from as far down as you want to go, all the way up through Iowa. And the same type pattern works no matter where you're at there. And, and you bring up uh, the, the topic of shallow fishing, and I want to dive more, I guess, into kind of the creeks that you spoke of. But before we jump off into, I guess, the shallow end in this case, we're, we're here in the middle of July. It's hot. Is that a rule of thumb that you're still going to hold by with fishing the creeks and and kind of the skinny water, I guess, this time of year? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll be back here when that water temperature's in the mid-90s. A good example, I think George Cochran's made a pretty good living fishing extremely shallow this time of year. And um, those fish live back here. They're raised back there. They're born there. And then they live there. I mean, there's food back here, and they just there's no reason for them to ever leave. And, and the creeks that you speak of, do they have current that's moving through there? Uh, does current play a role in these creeks as compared to the main river channel? Current plays a role, but I think current's something that, that a lot of people look at differently. I don't look at flow in the river as far as current. Uh, I look at barge traffic as much as I do anything. You know, a barge going by a, a shallow flatwater creek will move quite a bit of water. And just that barge going by the mouth of that creek will, will create current. And not only does it create current on an outflow basis, but a lot of times, you know, Bill, I've seen it to where it'll actually push water back into to the creeks as well. Sure. It'll push it in just as well as pulling it out. And, and what I'm doing, I'm looking for structure in those in those creeks. And, I mean, a structure can be just as simple as a tree limb laying in the water, a rock or a laying log or anything like that. And a lot of these creeks, we're using a push pole to get into. Some of them, you know, on practice days or fun days out, I've been to creeks where I couldn't actually get the boat in there. To start with, I would get out and actually walk the mouth of that creek where it's silted in at the mouth of the river. And it might be that way for 40 or 50 yards and then all of a sudden drop off into, you know, two or three foot of water, four foot of water. And kind of a little crazy, but sometimes you put up on plane and just run through that little shallow area and then you got plenty of water once you get back in there. Well, and I think you bring up a good point right there um, concerning a little bit different situation, per se, than fishing a reservoir. You know, when, when you have rivers and when you have moving water, the dynamics change um, depending upon how much or how little uh, water that you have um, you know, coming in rainfall, those type of things. But the dynamics of a river change. So you also have to pay kind of close attention to how you navigate. Oh, most definitely. And, I mean, you know, you got to watch your buoys. Almost all the rivers are, are buoyed off very, very well. And, you know, use some common sense, too. You know, figure out which way the current's rolling. And, you know, as you're going downstream, if there's a hard bend to the right, the current's going to cut to the left bank and then sweep to the right. And you just use some common sense there. And you can navigate the river pretty well by just looking at the banks. You can see which way it's running. So. 
Well, and, and for instance, when you find one of the, the mouths of the creek that you want to go into, you know, probably a pretty good rule of thumb is make sure you get far enough down current before you make your, your entrance into that so that you're coming with the natural cut or the channel that's coming out of that creek. Uh, exactly. You made a very good point there. And, I mean, if anybody's got any doubts at all, get out, put your tennis shoes on, and walk that thing. Find out exactly where that low spot's at, and you can shoot in there. It's a little bit crazy at times, but some of these creeks that we fish here in Indiana, I mean, are maybe two, three boat widths wide as you go into the mouth of them. Then you get back in them, and they open up. And some of these, too, I mean, you can get on. The Internet's got some pretty neat things. I think Global Maps, you can get on there and Terror Server and actually look and do some research, and you can find some of these creeks that don't look like much at the mouth, but they'll have some pretty good holes open up back in the back of them, some good oxbows in them. Well, exactly, and, and it's almost like once you get in there, it's kind of its own uh, body of water within itself, you know, separate from what is going I've seen numerous times to where you get in there, the water quality, uh, and that is something that's very important to keep in the kind of the back of your mind this time of year, especially with the hot water, but it, it drastically improves. And, you know, you, you talk about going to the back of them, um, what do you do in the situation? Because several times I've seen it to where you don't want to go in there too far. You put your trolling motor down, you know, and you're on that, and it's it's washing mud boils everywhere, but yet the fish are still all the way at the back of the cove. I think the biggest key there is don't use that trolling motor very much. In fact, when I get in these creeks, and especially once I know one, I turn all my electronics off. I go in there as quiet as I can possibly go in. And then once I get in there, I cast and flip to every piece of cover that I can reach before I touch trolling motor again. And, you know, myself personally, I use one of the Ardent Reels, one of the XS1000, and by using that, I've got that extra distance that I make sure I hit all that because, like I said, that trolling motor will spook fish. And there again, too, I use a push pole a lot. It's not a lot of fun, but uh, it makes a difference on catching some quality fish or not. Well, and, and when you think about it, you know, because really what you're describing is is making, you know, increasing your odds by making numerous casts. And the longer the cast that you can make with the style of fishing that you're doing, uh, especially if it's in the form of a topwater or moving bait, reaction-style bait, you know, that's just that many more fish, and that's that much more water that you're going to be able to cover at the end of the day. Exactly. You see a piece of cover. You see a laying tree or laying log on, off of one of those flats, uh, about 99% guarantee there's a fish on that thing. And, uh, you know, you might make the first cast down that tree, and that fish will eat it. And sometimes it's a fifth, sixth, eighth, ninth, tenth cast. If you feel there's a fish there, there probably is. Don't be afraid to make numerous casts to that target. Well, and, and that's what I was going to ask. You know, how do you define what is the right number of casts to make to a certain piece of structure? Because, you know, I, I'm sure you're like the rest of us, Bill, to where you pulled up and maybe sometimes on the first flip they've, they've bit it or on the first, you know, time that you've, you've drawn your spinnerbait or something past it, they're going to eat it. But other times, you know, it might take four or five. I use a gut peeling. I mean, that's a hard thing to describe to people. But if you honestly feel there's a fish there, there probably is. You know, I'll make at least eight or ten pitches or cast to a particular target if I feel there's a fish there. I mean, if it's a little twig and I make three or four pitches to it, I don't get bit, then I'll probably go on. But so many times, Aaron, I've made one or two pitches to it, and you think that laying log comes out and it stops, but yet you hit trolling motor to go by it, and actually your trolling motor hits it, and then you see a fish blow off of it. Yeah, And by that, you know, it guarantees me the confidence that I need to make multiple casts at that target. Exactly, and that's one of the worst feelings in the world, but it also, it's it's almost a kind of a point of realism of that you get to learn something. Sure. Slow down and uh, beat it to death. Yeah. I mean, we're up here, especially, like I said, I'm from Indiana here, and 
we're up here where where it's tough. I mean, you got to grind out your fish. And my deal is you just fish very, very slow and very, very thorough and leave no rock unturned. Yeah. Well, let's let's transition into, you know, if you had to pick a handful of baits, let's say three or four baits, um, are you sticking with the traditional baits that you would use on the larger reservoirs, or is there something different that you're doing in your bait selection? I downsize a little bit. For the most part, I'll take a crawl worm to flip and pitch with, which I'll do on a reservoir. But I'll go with, like, say, uh, an ultra-vibe speed crawl, a smaller profile crawl worm to fish on the uh, river with. And then a spinnerbait, same deal. We downsize the spinnerbaits. In fact, we're designing some right now. It's going to be a little river spinnerbait, and it's just a real small profile. That'll be a quarter ounce. We make them in an eighth ounce and a three sixteenth. Wow. We'll throw. They're compact enough that, I mean, with that ardent reel, you can rifle them a mile. And the same thing with a little buzz bait. Do the same thing and then throw some real small profile crankbaits at the same time. What about as far as colors? I mean, you know, specific, let's, let's narrow it down specifically to the Ohio River and its backwater system. Um, are, are there certain colors that tend to be universal? Spinnerbait, I mean, you can throw chartreuse and white, or you can throw white and chartreuse. Color doesn't matter as long as it's chartreuse and white. As long as it's chartreuse and white. <laughs> and, you know, on a buzz bait, sometimes on a cloudy day, and I don't really know if it makes a difference or not, sometimes I'll throw a, a black skirt instead of a white or white and chartreuse. But I'm not sure that that really matters other than just confidence in yourself. Ohio River's dirty. So, I mean, I'm either throwing a black and red crawl worm or a black and blue crawl worm. If it gets real clean and real clear, which is unusual, I'll go to a green pumpkin. What about as far as on your blade combinations, let's say, for instance, on your spinnerbaits? Is it, is it a more of a, a double willow, a, you know, Colorado willow, Indiana blade? or Usually an Indiana and a Colorado or two Colorado blades. You know, occasionally when there's a real good uh, shad fry hatch out there, then you'll go to some little tiny willow leaves. But for the most part, it's stained enough that I'll just throw the Colorado blade. Is it necessary to put that, that trailer hook or that trailer on there to, to give it uh, a little more appeal in the water? I do put a trailer on. Trailer hooks I usually don't because, I don't know, when they eat it, they eat it on the right. river. I mean, it's either eat or it leaves. Well, and, and if you're throwing, you know, a quarter, eighth, and an ounce spinner baits, uh, chances are they're probably going to get that in the mouth the first time. Yeah, they eat it pretty good. And, and the other part of it is, you know, a lot of these casts, like I said, we're in extremely shallow water. And, you know, I tell a lot of guys in my boat, you know, don't throw anywhere you don't want to leave that bait. Right. Because a lot of times you throw it up there and you cannot get to it. And which brings me to my next question. Uh, we've kind of covered the baits. We, we've set the stage on the Ohio River and what to look for. How do you know what creeks to check along the Ohio River? Because I'm, I'm sure there's there's several of them that you could peel off into. Now, what I do, and, and this is just myself personally, but I look for flatter creeks. I look for creeks that don't have a whole lot of definition to them. I mean, you can get out your river charts or you can go on the Internet and look at the maps. And those big, deep creeks, I kind of shy away from. A lot of people like to fish those because they're easier to maneuver and, and navigate. I'd rather work a little bit harder and get in those shallow, flat creeks and uh, look at those. And I try to find a creek that's in a bend, you know, on a down current bend, mm -hmm. somewhere around in there that, you know, does have some current flow into them. In, in our last closing minute, Bill, what about, let's say, if, if you're trying to, to put a limit together, do you ever fish in the main river before you go back to the creeks or vice versa and, and key on some of that commercial structure? Occasionally we do. You know, if they're pulling current good, especially 
especially like in the morning before takeoff, if I can see current moving good in the river, then I'll pull up and there are some places that's got some wreck barges or some big trash piles that's blowed up in some bins. And some of those you can pull up and you, you can target and catch a quantity of fish pretty quick and then head to your creeks to call them out and try to get you a good lemon. Yeah. Bill, uh, once again, I, I, it, it amazes me how quickly this time goes by, but we are out of time. Any closing thoughts uh, specifically pertaining to the Ohio River or just fishing in general before we get out of here? My whole thing is keep it shallow and keep it wet. You, know? <laughs> you can't catch them with that big motor running, so keep that trolling motor down and, and just grind them out. It's certainly been a, a pleasure having you on here again, Bill, and as always, I'm sure uh, you'll be happy to answer any questions that the listeners have. Just go to uh, Ask the Pros section on BassEdge.com, and we'll get those sent out to you. Sure, no problem at all. It's always a pleasure doing a show with you, Aaron. Thanks a lot, Bill. Until next time, uh, best of luck on your remaining tournaments. Okay, thanks, Aaron. You know what? You can't really say anything bad about his technique. He's got three of the top five finishes in the Ohio area. Yeah, and he also took, uh, like you mentioned there, took Angler of the Year in the Federation. So, you know, the guy knows the Ohio River. He obviously also knows how to fish. But the thing that, that I get a lot out of from him is just the way that he presents the information. Very easy to understand. Yeah, I tell you what, you dumb it down so people like me can understand it, you're gold. Yeah, <laughs> there, there you go. I, didn't I, quite I figured mean I'd it like say that. it before you did. <laughs> I didn't quite mean it like that now. You're putting <laughs> words in my mouth. Uh, but uh, I, love, I love his philosophy on fishing creeks because, you know, when I go to bodies of water that I'm not really familiar with, the first thing I look for is creek channels. Exactly, and I like the fact that the Ohio is filled with commercial structure, you know, barge mm-hmm. pilings, things like that, uh, riprap. But he breaks it down to the standpoint, if you just find the, find the creeks, and you can do that on accessing the websites and the maps like he had pointed out. But one of the things that I thought was a little bit different is he doesn't just go into any creek. He likes the flat creeks that aren't quite as deep, a little harder to get into, but that's where he finds a lot of his success at. And did you notice that he likes using smaller profile baits? Who does that remind you of? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah, he's a man after my own heart. I I tell you what, I I don't know what it is, but you get in this time of year, I don't know why fish react that way. I mean, I know there's people still catching them on spinners with trailers and everything else or with their creature baits, but boy, I tell you what, you throw those little two, two and a half inch baits out there, it's amazing how well you can get bit, especially in high pressure areas, because I think people tend to throw bigger than littler. Exactly, and and that's a great point, because like Bill had mentioned, you know, the Ohio River, um, and not rightfully so, I don't think, it has the two, you know, lowest classic weights in the history ever weighed in. But it's not because there are not fish in there. And one of the, the reasons why he goes to that smaller bait is he wants to improve or increase his chances for getting more bites and then allow himself to kind of cull through those, you know, as the day progresses. Yeah, and I like the fact that he understands that, you know, people, when you're thinking of the Ohio, you're thinking of muddy water anyway or stained water. Taking that push pull along, not to make it any more muddy or stained, is a great idea. Well, exactly, because a lot of times those creeks, you know, you get away from the main water, and, and mm-hmm. let's say you're going back into the creek or back into the oxbow, you break over where the channel enters, which is a lot of times there's shallow and there's it's a lot of silt right there, and hence that's the reason why he had explained getting out of the boat, tying his boat up if he's not familiar with it. He'll walk the channel to see where it is so that he can actually put his, put his boat up on plane to get through there to be safe. But then once he does get back in there, you know, a lot of times that, that water clarity and quality will actually change. So he doesn't want to go in there and change that by running his trolling motor around a lot. So he'll use that push bolt. Yeah, because if you don't do that, that's the quickest way for them to get locked off. Boy, that's for sure now, because they know you're there and, and his advice of shutting the electronics off and just being as stealth as possible all helps you catch more fish. 
Yeah, really good interview, folks. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Well, I tell you what, I think next up is Bob Luck. Is that right, Aaron? That is right. All right, well, let's go to the break, and we'll be right back, right here on The Edge. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 towing pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge. All right, we are back on The Edge, and joining us once again is the very intelligent, knows more than I know, could ever possibly know about fishing. That is Mr. Bob Lust. Bob, thanks so much uh, again for being part of the edge. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, we just we just keep uh, just just keep rocking and rolling with those those introductions, don't we? I love it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hey, hey we have limited time as usual, but I want to make sure that, uh, that that we get this topic covered because it is uh, a topic that is very real to a lot of folks right now, and that is the topic of high water. Boy, I tell you what, Aaron, it sure is. With the floods in the Midwest and Iowa and Wisconsin, areas like that, and much of the nation have dealt with floods over the years. You know, we don't really think much about fish. Uh, but I tell you what, fish do behave differently when the, when the water is high. For example... If we just think about lakes, if we think about a lake rising 8 or 10 feet, it triggers different behaviors, especially in the springtime. Uh, it actually triggers spawning behaviors in bass, smallmouth bass as well as largemouth bass. Uh, they actually look at that. A rise is something that symbolizes the, the natural course of the spring, so they'll tend to make nests and breed again, even if, even if it's you know in May or June after they've already completed their spawn. But the typical behaviors that we're going to want to think about as fishermen and anglers is where are they and what do they do? And I'll tell you this, they stay in the very same places. Wow. Especially especially bass. Largemouth bass like to hang in the same areas that they like when the water's at normal pool level. Now, when the water's flowing, it's a little bit different. Uh, when the water's moving, they have a tendency to move into that current because it suggests that there might be more food available. So they may... They'll, they'll nose into that moving water and, and go up and seek food, especially if they're hungry. But as the water rises, their tendencies are to behave the very, very same way as if the water is at normal pool level. So if you're going to be fishing for bass in a lake that's more full than normal, especially in summer mm-hmm. like it is now, they're going to be in the same spots with the same behavior patterns that they would as if the lake were, were at pool level or even a little bit lower. So what about if the water comes up quickly and then you have some, you know, generation going on with the flood control, you know, they start releasing some water. What, uh, it, it seems that that always presents the kind of the quandary of questions of, okay, where do I go? Yeah, I'll tell you what, what I know about bass behavior from, you know, years of, of playing with them and learning about them as a, as a grower, you know, as a kind of producer more than the angler and their feeding habits and their feeding patterns. When water is being released like that, larger fish still act like larger fish. They're going to still hold close cover. They like points. You know, they're going to be they're going to be more lethargic because when when a system, a water system becomes unstable, the fish does everything it can to be stable. So what in other words what I mean is 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 they may 
they may end up being a little bit less active because they're holding tight until the conditions get back to what they what their bodies perceive as normal. Now, when, when, when electricity is being generated, sometimes that will trigger them to come out of those doldrums and start moving and becoming active again. Is that, is that a good enough answer? Does that get you anywhere? Yeah, I, I think that's, that, that hits the nail on the head. And I think you bring up another key that even in my personal angling experience, you know, is, is the term stability. Um, you know, do you check the original shoreline kind of where, where it was first, maybe where the, the fish were holding? Uh, if there is stability and the water does come up and is there for a while, then perhaps maybe check, you know, some of the other, the new areas that have been uh, kind of flooded bushes or something like that. Would you agree? I would totally agree with that. I'll tell you this, the fish are going to become conditioned to certain environmental conditions and food chains. And once they get that where they're, where they're comfortable and they're stable, that's kind of the patterns that they're going to get involved in. And the water level does not change that very much with one exception. When the water is cool, like in the spring and the fall, and new areas are inundated, that's where a lot of the bait fish go to spawn, and that will trigger a fish to come out of that, quote, stable environment and move into areas, new areas where they can feed. But in the summer, I mean, since we're in the middle of July, their tendencies are going to be to hold their summer patterns and and you can relate that as to where the lake would be as though it were normal. So so technically, you're, you're just fishing the, the same areas that you would... You, you kind of move that out of your, your conscious or your, or your thought process and still target the exact same things that if the lake was at normal pool. That's exactly what I would do. Now, if we're talking about a river, you know, or a stream or an inlet, that's a little bit different. The fish are going to behave differently there than they do in a lake. But in a lake, I would stay with the very same thought pattern that I would have. Now, of course, you know, often when a, when a lake rises, it's muddy, mm-hmm. you know, and if the fish don't behave the same where you're fishing because the water's muddy, then you got to change your tactics and go find where they would be under their normal circumstances. So there's so many variables that come together, but their behavior is not going to change simply because the water rose in right. the summer. It's based upon what you say, their, their feeding and their, their normal behavior of which they usually carry out. That's right. And what's really interesting, and I'll tell you something else that's very important is to check temperatures because... One thing we got to know, like with largemouth bass especially, is their prime operating temperature is in the mid to upper 70s. They operate well from about what I've learned from 53 degrees to 83 degrees. When it gets warmer than 83 degrees, they become lethargic and sluggish, and they tend to kind of sleep for 20 to 22 hours a day. So when they do that, in their summer patterns, they'll move out into that deeper water, sit above the thermocline, and just sit. You know, and it takes something to jolt them out of that, which oftentimes is hunger, you know, or currents, or something that changes the stability of that environment when the water temperature is above 83 degrees. All great information, Bob. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I would like to get you on here in the future to uh, kind of investigate a little bit more in detail on some of these topics that we talked about. But in the meantime, uh, thank you so much once again for being part of The Edge, and we look forward to talking with you again in the future. It's always a pleasure, and thanks for including me, my friend. When I'm fishing in a tournament, time is critical. I need fast, easy access to my lures. My Cook's go-to tackle system keeps my bait organized, tangle-free, and within easy reach. It installs in minutes under any deck lid, maximizing the storage space of my boat. And its durable construction lasts even through the harshest conditions. 
Get organized with Cook's Tackle System by calling 1-888-390-8780 or online at cooksgoto.com. Welcome back to The Edge. All right, welcome back on The Edge Outdoors. Dan Aaron Martin here. And, you know, that Pond Boss guy, that Bob Lusk, he loves talking fish. <laughs> yeah, think. I mean, the guy, you know, I, I finally found somebody that eats and breathes it more than what I do, I think. So. Yeah. But he, he's full of information. It is. And you know what? He's right about the high water. You know, it's pretty unbelievable when you get high water conditions like we've had in Iowa and upper and through even through Missouri this year with the rain. It's unbelievable. I mean, you're finding fish staging on picnic tables. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. But, you know, I like how he pointed out that when waters rise or a sudden rise, it can trigger, you know, different behavior. But mm-hmm. for the most part, it's going to be a non-issue because he he mentioned, and you've heard us, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot, stability, and, and that's really the key. Yeah, and it will stay in the same area. It's just, you know as well as I do, you get that much high water, you're going to find bass where you haven't before. Exactly, exactly. But I think everything always comes back to the average or, or back to the norm. Uh, you know, one of the stipulations or, or kind of caveats to that, I guess, was when he pointed out that unless there's a lot of current, then a yeah, lot of times they're going to, you know, stage in the, in that current. Yeah, they're going to want to feed in that current. Exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, folks, a lot of stuff going on at Bass Edge. Don't forget to check out the latest Bass Edge merchandise. Uh, I don't know what other Aaron Martin thing they got, but I'm sure they got something. <laughs> yeah. The money clip, has that came out yet? The, the, the money clip, I don't know why we'd come out with money clip. I don't have anything to put in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> not, so. not for what we're paying for gas. We don't. Exactly. Uh, sign up for the e-newsletter. And you know what? The nice thing about that, one of the things I really like about Bass Edge a lot of this stuff is absolutely free of charge. Absolutely. You know, so, it's just all about the information. It's all about just getting it out there. Hey, and if you want to sign up for prizes and giveaways, I know Aaron and I have been talking about this for the last six months or so, but please include your shipping information because we can't send you something if we don't know how to get a hold of you. Well, exactly, and then a perfect example of that is going to be the next question that we have from Ross, uh, who... That's the only information we've got is his first name and his email address. Um, he did not put his contact information on there, so, Ross, if uh, you could shoot that back to us. But bottom line, uh, we've got to know where to send that stuff to. So, um, anyway, did you did you get a chance to, to look over that question, Dan? I did. He said he, went, he reads and hears a lot of different things about knots for tying certain lures. What knot works the best for tying on plastic worms, or should I use different knots based on conditions? Or is there one general knot technique you recommend? And, Ross, I'll just I'll tell you what I do. I use a polymer knot on ninety percent of the things I use, I fish. And you know, uh, a couple podcasts ago we talked about I was up fishing walleye in Lake of the Woods, and I I caught two fish over seven eight pounds, and I t- I was using ten pound uh, fluorocarbon. Aaron, I never lost a fish. I never got broke off one. Well, and the thing is, exactly, and and I would agree with you. That is probably my most used knot and and most universal as far as technique specific. But the thing with a polymer is, as long as you moisten it uh, to create a good cinch down and make sure that when you bring that through the eye of the hook that you're not overlapping the line because you're bringing through, you know, two pieces of line there. It's doubled up. That, cut uh, itself. Exactly, exactly, right. and, and you'll never have to worry about that. The only thing that I would, I guess, other advice that I would give to Ross is, you know, occasionally I'll, I will use a snell knot, uh, specifically like on a worm or, um, you know, baits that I'm going to be uh, pitching. And the reason being I'll use a snell knot because if, when you pair that with a straight shank hook for those type of techniques, it ensures that that hook is going to open up on the hook set and it increases, uh, you know, really my chances of a good hook set. You know, matter of fact, 
Ross, if you'll go to the Bass Edge Quick Tips video section, Kurt Dove just recently did a video piece uh, showing that very knot and, and the impact that it has on a hook set. So, uh, yeah, and that's, and that's really a neat thing because you can actually watch him tie it. Exactly. It, it's worth its weight in gold. I was, when I was turkey hunting the spring down with Shaw Grigsby, Shaw showed me this knot. And Aaron, I still, I, I totally forgot the name of it. Well, it, it's it's like trying to watch, you know, Jacob's Ladder and uh, us sitting here talking about it yeah. doesn't really do it justice. So uh, that's one of the reasons that the, the video tips does bring it a different, you know, kind of uh, vantage point too. Yeah, he was, he had fingernail clippers going everywhere cutting <laughs> stuff and I'm going, there's no way I'm going to remember this. <laughs> oh, I know, I'm the same way. I've got to watch it at least four or five times and then normally fail at it about five or six times before I get it down. Yeah, I don't know how you guys do it. It's crazy. Yeah. Hey, don't forget the e-newsletter sign up, and you need to put your shipping information whenever you email us, just so in case we pull you for like a, uh, say we want to send you an Air Martin hat or a Bass Heads t-shirt or something. we got to have that in there. But the e-newsletter is absolutely free of charge. Please get on that. And also, you know, iTunes, and two great ways to, to hear the podcast. iTunes is absolutely free download. And, Aaron, I think you can still subscribe, can't you? So every time there's a new one, it goes right to you? Absolutely. And, uh, of course, the other part of that is just going directly to BassEdge.com. But, yeah. you know, now with the, the widgets being on there, you can get, uh, you know, real-time information. It comes right up on your browser uh, whenever anything new is posted to BassEdge.com. See, you got everything you need right there. Exactly. Uh, what else is going on? Anything? Uh, no, I, I've got to get to fishing. <laughs> so, yeah. Hey, and don't forget, uh, I know this has only been the last couple of weeks, but don't forget you can watch Bass Edge pretty much every day now on the World Fishing Network, WFN. Yes, yeah. The good thing about that is is that opens up a whole new audience. So for those of you who uh, maybe didn't have one of the other networks, it gives you a third option now to be able to, to check us out. Who's up next week? Next week we have Bass Elite Angler Randy Howell, currently number 10 in points, and then also Matt Archer from Mercury Marine, who's going to give us some mid-season tech tips. Well, there you go. That's exciting. Well, I tell you what, we need to get out of here for Aaron Martin. This is your humble correspondent, Outdoors Dan Young. We'll see you next time right here on The Edge. Bass Edge would like to thank the following sponsors who make the Edge audio program possible. Ditch Witch, Mother's Waxes and Polishes, V&W Trailer Hitches, Megaware Keel Guard, Cook's Tackle Management Systems, Ardent, Rule the Water, Legend Boats, O'Reilly Auto Parts, Superstar Batteries, and the Clarks Hill Partnership of Georgia. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.